as I prepared the lesson for Noah, there were several points in study and preparation where I thought this is the most challenging one that we've looked at just from a a story perspective and a character perspective. It's such a well-known story that presents some challenges. It's a lot easier to teach sometimes on somebody that you're not particularly familiar with. Um, You're familiar with Noah, so that presents a little bit of a challenge. And for a guy that lived an awful long time, according to the Scriptures, the part of his life that we actually read about in the Scriptures is relatively short. And so the timeline of his life gets condensed. Um, I don't know the last time you opened your Bible and just started in Genesis 6 and read through the story of Noah. I know that you're familiar with the general plot line, but I don't know the last time you actually opened it and read it. If it's been a while, you should do that. We're not going to do it tonight just because of it's three, four chapters long and uh, we're not going to read all, all the way through it. But you should take a few moments maybe this evening just to read through it and to think about it. It's a fascinating story. And there is something about the story of Noah that obviously captures human imagination. I think that's one of the reasons that um, we decorate the rooms of children with Noah's Ark which is a strange thing if you think about it because it's a story in the Bible where everyone dies a terrible death and we say, well, this would be a nice theme for a child's nursery. (laughs) Children's Bibles always include the story and they include it very comically and what I mean is not that they make light of it as they tell the story but that they make light of it as they depict the scene with sort of this tiny little round U-shaped boat and a bunch of animals, the giraffe's heads are sticking off and the elephant's trunks are hanging over and the, the birds and the, you know the, the pictures I'm talking about. Hollywood has got into the action. In 2014, there was a movie titled Noah, starring Russell Crowe. How many of you saw this movie? I just am curious how many of you watched it. Not many of you. That's good. That's good. The story... <laughs> The story pulls from a couple of different sources. They pull from the Bible. There's some things they pull out of Scripture. Um, They pull from some ancient Jewish sources uh, that sort of speculate on things that might have been happening. Uh, They pull from some other sources that were written much, much later uh, than the Old Testament. And there's some really wonky things that happen in the movie. For example, there's a guy named Tubal-Cain who is mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, but he's a major character. He's sort of a warlord in the movie Noah, and he actually sneaks on the ark. I missed that part in Genesis, but he sneaks on the ark in the movie. And then the strangest part of the movie, if you're watching it, is that somewhere in the middle of the flood, Noah loses his mind. And you know the part about his kids and his, his sons and his daughter-in-laws are on the ark. And in the movie, one of them has a baby while they're on the ark. And he just kind of snaps and goes bonkers and almost kills his grandchild on the ark. And it's really, it's really, really bizarre. But the movie made $350 million, which tells you that people are interested in it. People know the general idea of Noah's Ark, even if they're not from a Christian background, even if they didn't grow up going to church or Sunday school, if you sort of throw out the idea of Noah's Ark, most people in our culture are going to have some reference point for, oh yeah, that's the guy that built the boat, put all the animals on it, and the water came, and they they know the general idea. 
Um, it's not just Americans who are interested in the story, though. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of the, the reality of the story of Noah. If you study ancient cultures all around the world, you will find on every continent, on almost every ancient people group and civilization, a flood story. Just all over the world, people who were isolated, people who didn't have contact with the Jewish people, everywhere you go, Native American, South American, uh, people in Europe, people in Africa, people in Asia, all over the world, people have these stories. There's over 200 different ancient flood myths about this massive flood that destroyed the world. And it's fascinating enough to me to say, how in the world did all of these different cultures come up with similar stories about a flood that destroyed the world? What's even more interesting is that when you look at those stories and study them, they have a lot of the same features, okay? I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying to you that all of these 200 ancient flood myths have all of these parts, but a lot of them have some of these parts I'm about to list, into, list for you. Uh, many of these stories describe a god or gods who are angry with humanity. Many of these stories uh, describe human beings at the time of this great cataclysm as intrinsically wicked, as greatly wicked. Many of these stories say that there was a, a single righteous person or there was a single righteous family or a, a single righteous tribe. There was one little sort of silo of righteousness. In many, many of these stories, the main character, the protagonist, builds a giant boat, and in very many of them, he saves a whole lot of animals. And in some of them, you can see on the picture on the bottom right that they also save plants. So some of the, some of the similar details you may expect. Um, many people die, and some of them, all the people die, and the gods sort of start over. And then in many of these stories, there's a sacrifice at the end. The whole thing ends with some sort of sacrifice. And to me, this is one of the great apologetic proofs that this actually happened, is that everywhere you go on planet Earth, there are people who are, let's just say, haunted by this story. They have some distant memory of something that happened. Now, has it been twisted and perverted? Yes. Has idolatry been mixed into it? Yes. Has superstition and some silly things and some of the details been changed or forgotten over time? Absolutely. But everywhere you go on planet Earth, people have some ancient distant memory of a cataclysm. And one of the things that I believe is interesting or important when you think about the story of Noah is to remember is not the first story in the Bible. And one of our greatest mistakes when we tell these Old Testament stories is that we just tell them without any reference to what came before it or without any reference to what came after it. And that's not how you read any kind of literature in the world except maybe an encyclopedia that has isolated articles. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a story from beginning to end. And if you're going to make sense of Genesis 6, you've got to make sense of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So here's a quote from Kenneth Matthews. He's written a commentary on Genesis, and he just points out something we need to remember. He says, Noah is depicted as Adam revived. He is the sole survivor and successor to Adam. Both men walk with God. Both are the recipients of the promissory blessing. Both are caretakers of the lower creatures. Both father three sons. Both are workers of the soil. Both sin through the fruit of a tree. 
and both father a wicked son who was under a curse. There's more to his quote. I just didn't include all of it. But what he's saying to you is, look, you've got to understand this story of Noah is like a retelling of what happened with Adam. Adam is set up as this representative for humanity. He fails miserably, and everyone is affected by it. Everything goes to pot. It's just a total mess. Everything's a disaster. It's ruined. God's good creation is no longer very good. Here comes Adam, and it's almost like a retelling of the story, like we're going to hit the reset button. God is angry. He's disappointed. He's grieved that he made human beings on the earth. And we get this reset, and it just plays out step for step exactly like it did the first time. And the author of Genesis is saying to you, this is not just an Adam problem. This is a human problem. And you can hit the reset button as many times as you want to hit it. You're going to get the same result every time. And you see it play out here with Noah. Old Testament context, we've talked about this week in and week out. Um, We're right on the heels of creation and the fall. And then comes the story of the flood. And right after this, there is the story of the Tower of Babel. And then we move into Abraham and the patriarchs. So that's where we're at. Now, one thing I've given you, just as sort of a reference point, and um, if, if you think this is wonky, you can make it into a paper airplane or whatever you want to do. But I've given you a, a timeline of the patriarchs. And sometimes patriarch is used for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes. Sometimes it's used for all of these characters in Genesis. So it's up to you. Um, it just lists out the people who are mentioned in the biblical genealogy. And it lists how long they lived. And then it sort of puts each person where they go. Adam lived so many years and he had a son. Seth lived so many years and they put them all in there. And then if you get over, you can see where the flood falls. And you can see that's in Noah's life in the 600th year. And then you can see uh, Noah's father had already been Uh, had already died, and Methuselah, his grandfather, died in the year of the flood. And then you see Shem and and the others who come after him. And just a couple of things to obviously point out. I know you can see it when you read it in the text, but when you see it graphically, it really is kind of striking. You've got these massive, massive lifespans before the fall. And then after the fall, those really, really quickly begin to shrink down uh, to something that's much more familiar to us. And As much as I'd love to get in the weeds on some of this, we're not going to do it tonight, okay? If you want to argue and debate about it later, I would love to do that. We can geek out on all the explanations here and are there gaps in these genealogies or did they develop a little bit slower before or uh, was time reckoned somehow different or were conditions different before and after the flood? We can talk about all that kind of stuff. But uh, the main two things I want you to see here are these long lifespans, they begin to be cut down after the flood, and it doesn't take very long. And then secondly, you see Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah, and you see where the flood falls. We're going to talk about some of those things here in just a minute. Before we do that, I want you to look at Genesis 5. There's lots of genealogies in the Bible. This one is unique And that it makes a point every time it lists somebody who was born and they had a son and he grew up and this happened to tell you that at the end of their life, this person died. And so you see it, for example, in verse 5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth, 912 years and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh, 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, Kenan died. Verse 15, Mahalalel died. 
Verse 20, Jared died. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. But then we go right back to the same pattern. Methuselah, 969, and he died. Lamech, 777, and he died. That's verse 31. And then we come to Noah. And the author of Genesis is saying to you, look, the consequences of Genesis 3 are very, very real. Every last one of these people die, just like God promised them would happen. I realize from your perspective and my perspective, we look back on those ages, 900 years, 700 years, 800 years, and we say, well, that's incredible. I don't, even know, I don't even know how to fathom that or can imagine living that long. It just seems like an eternity to us. But I hope you understand that on the other side of it, when you have in your mind that you are going to live forever and you have no category in your mind of death, 900 years is a ripoff. I mean, if you get to heaven and you get to live there 900 years and it ends, you're going to say, wait, no, 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 no. No, I want way more than 900 years. So it looks like a long time to us, but to a bunch of people who had this original idea of you're going to live forever with me in my presence, 900 years is not a long time. I want you to look at Genesis 6. These are some of the most interesting verses in the whole book of Genesis. And this is another place we could really geek out and talk about some controversial things. Let's just read them. Genesis 6.1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God, and that's one phrase you're going to have to circle and underline. And if you're going to make sense of this, you've got to figure out who are the sons of God. They saw that the daughters of man, you're going to have to figure out who are the daughters of man, were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. You're going to have to figure out, what does that mean? Does that mean polygamy? Does that mean sexual assault of some kind? What does that mean? Verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. We're going to come back to that verse in a minute. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth, and you need to figure out, if you're going to make sense of this, who are the Nephilim? They were on the earth in those days, and also afterward... When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You've got to figure out, okay, Nephilim, men of renown, mighty men, what's he talking about? Verse 5, okay? All those debated things you can try to figure out and sort through and trace them through the Bible and, and track them down. This is not debatable. This is not unclear. This is not confusing. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay, a couple of things to talk about in this second paragraph. Author of Genesis is describing something theologians call total depravity. That does not mean these people went around committing the maximum number of sins all the way throughout their life. It was nothing but nonstop, the worst sin imaginable every second of every day. What those verses do describe is that sin has tainted and affected everything that we do on some level. It's all ruined by sin. There's not one vestige left in us 
that's not impacted by the sin that's passed down to us from Adam. And the proof of that is in chapter 5 where every last one of them die. They die, they die, they die, they die. And the picture of humanity is that there's not anything left in them that hasn't been tainted and blemished and ruined in some sense by sin. The condition of humanity worldwide is that all of them are completely impacted and tainted by and and debilitated by sin. So that brings us to Noah, okay? Talk about his life story in several stages. Stage one, we're going to call prophecy. And maybe it would be better to say prophecies because I think there's actually two involved if you read the text carefully. Look at Genesis 5 in verse 21. It says, when Enoch... Okay, we're talking about Enoch, so you go over and look at your little handy-dandy timeline I gave you. Say Enoch, okay, he lived 365 years, his son was Methuselah, then came Lamech, then came Noah. So you work backwards and you say Lamech was his dad, Methuselah was his granddad, Enoch. This is Noah's great-grandfather, according to the timeline. Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. I think what the text is saying to you is there was something about the birth of Methuselah that was impactful in Enoch's life that after this moment he begins to walk with God. I think that's the the most plain reading of the text. And it's interesting that he names his son Enoch, names his son Methuselah. It's interesting because in the New Testament, you go look later in the book of Jude. There's only one chapter, so you can't miss it. The book of Jude says Enoch was a prophet. And Enoch walked around, and the main thing Enoch talked about when he's on the earth prophesying is things are so ungodly, God's going to come destroy it. You're ungodly. You're ungodly. You're ungodly. I think it's mentioned four times in the book of Jude out of Enoch's mouth. There's ungodliness everywhere. So he's concerned about the state of affairs, and he names, his name, he names his son Methuselah, which means something like, when he dies, it comes. When he dies, it comes. You say, well, that's a strange name. It is most certainly a strange name. When he dies, your son, you're celebrating the birth of a son, and you name him, when he dies, it comes. And then you go back to your timeline and you say, well, isn't this interesting? Methuselah lives 969 years, and in the very year that he dies, it floods. How did Enoch piece all that together? I have absolutely no idea. But he names his son. When he dies, it comes. And when he dies, it comes, it being the flood. So I think that's prophecy number one, sort of pointing you forward to what's going to happen through Noah. The second prophecy, I would just... Look at verse 29, chapter 5, verse 29, that says, Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son, verse 29, and he called his name Noah, which essentially means peace or rest. And look what he says after he names him Noah, Lamech, verse 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest. From our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And when you read that and you read about the ground and a curse and this painful toil, your mind ought to go and rewind back to Genesis 3, right? Where Adam sins and God shows up and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
thorns and thistles it's going to bear, and by the sweat of your brow you're going to work it, and you're going to toil all the days of your life, and then you're going to turn back to dust, for you were taken from dust in the first place. And you say, obviously, Lamech knew about that. He didn't have a Bible to read it in, but it got passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And Lamech, for whatever reason, says, look, when he dies, it's going to come. Maybe my son is the one that's going to bring us rest. I think behind that is some sort of hope that maybe my son is going to be the one that's going to come crush the head of the serpent and roll back this curse that Adam brought into into God's creation. So he names his son relief or he names him rest. And there's this hope that when Noah comes, in some sense there's going to be rest. So that's stage one, prophecy. Stage two, salvation. Salvation. Look at Genesis 6. Let's read verse 8, 9, and 10. The text says, but, it starts with the word but because we just left off describing how wicked humanity was, right? How bad were they? Well, the wickedness was great and every inclination of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I think a lot of Bible teachers make a mistake here, and they jump right into verse 9 without reading verse 8. They talk about Noah being righteous and blameless, but they don't talk about Noah finding favor or literally finding grace from the Lord. And the result is that our kids grow up, and maybe you grew up, hearing the story, story of Noah and thinking that what the Bible describes to you is everybody was really bad, but Noah was really, really good. Everybody else was really bad sinners, but Noah was just this, he was different. He was, he, something in him, he was better. And that's not what the text is describing to you, because verse 8 comes before verse 9. So you back up to verse 8 and you say, okay, let's start with this. Noah found favor. Literally, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say he earned it. It doesn't say he merited it. It doesn't say he worked for it. It doesn't say he deserved it in some way. It says Noah found it. It's almost as if he stumbled across it. It wasn't something that he earned. It was something that God gave to him. So first, God is gracious to Noah. What's the result of that? Verse 9. He's righteous. He has a right standing with God. And if you want to understand the story of Noah, not only do you have to go back to Adam, but you have to keep reading in Genesis. And if you keep reading in Genesis, you're going to meet a guy named Abraham. And the text says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And you say, okay, I'm connecting some of these dots. So here's all these wicked people, except we're going to single out Noah. And what made him different is that he found grace. Or you could say grace found him. And the result of that grace in his life is that he's a righteous man. And you connect that and you say, that means he was a man of faith. He believed God. And the New Testament confirms that. He was blameless in his generation. Meaning, when you compared him to everyone else, his life was different. It wasn't because he was just a great guy. It's because God's grace had changed him into a different kind of person. That's exactly how it works today, right? 
Hopefully, followers of Jesus look different than the rest of the world. Not because we're better, but because God's grace has saved us and changed us. And the result of all of that is that Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He was close with God. And you read about Noah walking with God, and you say, that sounds a lot like Enoch walked with God. He was close with God, and he trusted God. So what Genesis 6 8, 9, and 10 are describing is Noah's salvation. Okay? Stage 3, construction. Construction. We're not going to read all this, but let's look at a few verses. Genesis 6, 11. It says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And he gives the dimensions, how big, and how to make the door. And then he starts to talk about the flood. And this first stage is construction. Now look, this is another place we could just sort of geek out and talk about theories. There's all sorts of thoughts about how did a man who lived way back then build a boat of this size? We have no idea. Don't have a clue how he did it. I I don't know. I do know this. Ancient people weren't dumb. We tend to think of ancient people as stupid and dumb. And they were not stupid or dumb. And somehow this guy had enough time enough help, enough whatever to build this ginormous boat. And so that's stage number three, construction. Next, flood. Look at Genesis 7. And let's read about uh, starting in verse 6 to about verse 12. It says, Noah was 600 when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So there seems to be a suggestion that they go into the ark first and there's a waiting period and then here it comes. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Okay, pause it right there. This is one thing I actually did like about the Noah movie, is they didn't just portray it as one big massive global thunderstorm, but all of a sudden, when it was time, here came geysers like you've never seen bursting up from the bottom, and the earth is cracking apart, and things are breaking apart and blowing up everywhere, and that seems to be what the text is describing. There is rain coming down, but there's also water coming up, and the the landscape of the earth is drastically changed in this moment. So it says, the, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You can keep reading, but that's the gist of it. He was 600, year, 600 years old. They go in the ark. Water comes up. Water comes down, and it happens for 40 days, for 40 nights. If you keep reading, you piece it together. They're on the ark for about a year. It's about a year from when they get on to when they actually get off. 
And this is the flood. Next comes the covenant. Covenant. Genesis 8 and Genesis 9 describe this covenant. We're not going to read these verses. uh, But they get off and they offer a sacrifice. God says he's not going to destroy the world again. God talks to Noah about the importance of the image of God. You can see that in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That tells you something about what went wrong in the first place. When Noah gets off and you see this statement from God about the image of God in man and, and respecting that and not, not treating that lightly. And it reminds you to go back to Genesis six eleven, where it talks about corruption and violence and corruption and corruption. And they're violent in verse 13. And what the author is saying to you is, pre-flood, there was a complete disregard for the image of God in human beings. There was no sanctity to life at all. And on the flip side of that, one of the very first things God says to Noah is, you have got to treat life as sacred and as, as, as sanctified and as holy and as special because human beings are made in God's image. And then we run into this idea of the covenant. We won't read the passage, but I like to circle words. And so look at Genesis 9, 9. I establish my covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, uh, this is the sign of the covenant. Verse 15, remember my covenant. Verse 16, this is a lasting covenant. Verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant. Like, uh, you got to be a dummy to miss it, right? I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a promise to you that is not conditioned on your side of the table. I'm just telling you this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to destroy the earth again, and I'm going to give you the rainbow as a sign. Some scholars look at that and say that rainbows didn't happen before the flood. Something changed, and rainbows are a result afterwards. And some say, no, he just took something that was familiar and made that the sign. Flip a coin and pick one. The rainbow becomes the sign. That's the covenant. Last stage. Sometimes you don't know how restraint and how much self-control I actually have. Because we're going to call the last stage sin. What I really wanted to put up on the screen was hillbilly stage. This is Noah the hillbilly or Noah the redneck. But we'll just go with sin. And we are going to read this. Genesis 9.18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three people were the sons. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Great. He planted a vineyard. Fantastic. He drank of the wine, fine, and he became drunk. That's a problem. And he lay uncovered in his tent. That's a problem. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the grandson, you notice, 
A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died, which harkens back to Genesis 5. And he died, and he died, and he died, and Noah dies. This is just really strange, and it's a little bit embarrassing for the guy that we just read about who found grace with God and was righteous and blameless in his generation and walked with God, and he gets off the ark, and some amount of time passes, and he just gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent, and his one of his kiddos walks in, and instead of protecting the honor of his father, he invites other people to laugh at his dishonor, at his disgrace. And this is the repeating of the Adam story, right? This is the author of Genesis saying to you, okay, we've hit the reset button, but the same fundamental problem exists in these people as it did before. These waters washed people from the face of the earth, but they didn't wash sin from the hearts of God's people. There's still a really big problem here, and you see it in Noah, and you see it in his kiddos. And the story ends, that's how it ends. There's no verse on the tail end of that to say Noah felt really bad about what he had done. There's no verse that says that was the last time Noah ever drank homemade wine. There's no verse that says he always made sure to put his pajamas on before he went to bed. I mean, none of that. Like, it just ends. It ends in disgrace for Noah. For this righteous man, this blameless man, this man that walked with God, it just ends uh, really as an embarrassment. So let's talk negatives and positives. Positive. Noah is remembered as a man of faith and obedience who walked with the Lord, even though no one else walked with him. So he didn't have any backup. He didn't have any moral support. And yet he still had faith and he was obedient and he walked with the Lord. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Flip over and look at this passage. Ezekiel 14. And while you find Ezekiel 14, um, Myers, if you could put up on the screen the timeline for the Old Testament. Uh, No, not that one. That one. Okay. Noah takes place in the flood, way on the left side of the timeline. And we're jumping to Ezekiel, which means we're jumping all the way to the right side and we're in the period of the exile. Okay? There's an awful lot of history between Noah and Ezekiel. All kinds of stuff happens in the middle there. And we're jumping into this period of the exile. God's people have rebelled over and over and over and over and over again. This story of Adam, the story of Noah just gets repeated over and over and over again. There's something in these people. They just keep doing the same things over and over again. God eventually kicks them out of the promised land that he brought them into in the first place. And look at Ezekiel 14 verse 12. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and I break its supply of bread and send famine on it, and cut it off, cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would but deliver their own lives, 
by their righteousness, declares the Lord. And then verse 16 refers to those three men again. And verse 18 refers to those three men again. And jump down to verse 19. If I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Verse 21. Thus says the Lord God. How... Much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. And this is what the prophet is saying to the people. You're wicked, and God's going to send judgment upon you. He's going to send it in the form of sword. You're going to be attacked, and there's going to be a famine. There's going to be nothing to eat. There's going to be wild beasts. It's just going to be out of control, and there's going to be pestilence on the heel end of that. All that's going to come from God. And it wouldn't even matter if Noah was here. It wouldn't save you. You could add Daniel to it, and you could add Job to it. Three men specifically described as righteous and as blameless and as obedient and as faithful. Even if those three men were here, judgment would still come upon you for your sin. And it's interesting that all those years later, the prophet Ezekiel looks back and he says, Who can I look to for an example of faith and righteousness and obedience? Well, I could pick Noah and I could pick Daniel and I could pick Job, men who followed after God. So he's remembered for that. Now flip to the New Testament and look at Hebrews. Hebrews echoes what we see in Ezekiel. Hebrews 11 verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear. That's something new. We haven't read about Noah yet. He was a man who had reverent fear before God. And in that fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And you say, ah, that confirms exactly what we thought from Genesis 15, that his righteousness wasn't earned, but it was righteousness he received because he believed God and he was a man of faith. And that's part of his legacy, a man of faith, a man of obedience, and a man who walked with the Lord. Now for the negative. Noah was a sinful man who could not bring lasting rest to God's people. Nor could he roll back the curse of Genesis 3. We talked about his name meaning rest. There's this hope that this is the one that's going to bring us rest. This is the one that's going to deliver us from this curse and our painful toil. There's this expectation that maybe this is the one God promised to send... And you get to the end of it and you read Genesis 9 and you say, well, this is most certainly not the one that God promised to send. And I put a quote in your notes. I I don't think I put it up on a slide, but it is in your notes. It's from A.W. Pink. And he says this about Noah and how his story ends. He says, in the Bible, human nature is painted in its true colors. The characters of its heroes are faithfully depicted. And the sins of its most prominent personages are frankly recorded. It is human to err, but it is also human to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. Had the Bible been a human production, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would have been ignored, or if recorded at all, an attempt at extenuation would have been made. Had some human admirer chronicled the history of Noah, 
his awful fall would have been omitted. And yet it's not. And the author of Genesis is saying to you, he's not the one. He, he was a man. For the most part, he trusted the Lord and he obeyed the Lord in building this ark. And he had faith and he, he had reverent fear. All these are great things. But he wasn't the one to give rest to the people. He wasn't the one that was going to roll back the curse. He wasn't the one that the people were waiting for. And look, there's a serious lesson in the story of Noah. If you really read the story in its entirety and say, okay, this is the story as a whole, not just the part with the animals, but the whole thing. What am I supposed to take away from this? Yes, you should trust God. Yes, you should obey God. Yes, you should do it when no one else does it. That's great. But you also need to walk away saying, I need to understand that my victories yesterday do not mean I'm walking with God today. Trusting God last week doesn't mean I'm walking with the Lord today. And I can make a shipwreck of my life in a heartbeat. I could walk with the Lord faithfully for 600 years. And then in a moment, my story could end with a tragedy. He's a sinful man. He could not bring rest to the people. How does he point us to Jesus? Three thoughts. Jesus told his disciples that in the last days, excuse me, that the last days would be similar to the days of Noah. So Jesus looked at Noah and he said, there's something, there's something here that is like what it's going to be in the end. And look at Matthew 24. We'll just look at these quickly. Matthew 24. This is part of the, uh, the Olivet Discourse where he's, He's describing the destruction of Jerusalem. He's describing his return, and he's kind of going back and forth between the two. Verse 36, Jesus says, Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I just want to point out a couple of things here. Jesus is saying, look, in Noah's day, they were just going about their business, doing their own thing. They had no fear of God. They had no thought of God. It's going to be like that in the end. People are going to be going through life. They're going to be doing all the normal things. But God will be a distant memory to most of these people. And that's what it's going to be like when I come back. And he says, look, verse 39, the flood came and swept them all away. Now look at verse 40. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people look at that verse and say, oh, that's the rapture. That's where God's going to pluck his people out. That's not the parallel in the passage. He's talking about Noah and the flood. And the people who get swept away are not Noah and his sons who get raptured out of it. It's the wicked who get swept away. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. People are going to be swept away, not in some kind of rapture to miss the tribulation. They're going to be swept away to judgment when they least expect it. They're going to be grinding at the mill, going about their daily lives. And they're going to be swept away into this judgment. You can look at, at Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds says the same idea. Those who are gathered are taken to a judgment, not to some sort of life. So Jesus says there's a parallel there. Next, Peter drew from the story of Noah to describe both salvation and judgment. 
And if we were going to look at 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5, we'd need six months of Wednesday nights to sort them out because they're debated and argued and we're not even going to read them tonight. Here's what's clear. In one of the passages in 1 Peter, he is talking about salvation. Whatever else you think he's talking about, he's talking about salvation and he's talking about baptism and he says there's a parallel here between our baptism and the flood and Noah came through that and we come through our baptism and he's talking about salvation. So there's something to learn in the story of Noah about salvation. Then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he's talking about false teachers and he's saying God's going to get them in the end. They may not get it today, they may not get it tomorrow, but in the end, God's going to get them, just like he got the people in Noah's day. There's going to be judgment. And it's interesting that Peter looks back of all the stories he could look to, and he looks to the flood in Noah, and he says there's something to learn there about salvation, and there's something to learn there about judgment. So we'll end with this thought. The ark is a picture of our salvation in Christ. It's a picture of our salvation in Christ. Noah takes refuge inside the ark, and he survives the death all around him. Not because he's a good man, the end of the story proves he is most certainly not a good man, but because he found grace, and he was declared righteous because of his faith, and he did walk with God, and he did trust God, and he takes refuge in this ark, and he lives. And the New Testament parallel is obvious, I think. That the wrath of God is coming on sinful people. You can't avoid it. Sooner or later it's going to happen. You may think life is just going on like it's always gone on. But that's how it was in the days of Noah. And that's how it's going to be in the end. And God's judgment is going to come. The only hope for you and the only hope for me is to take refuge in what God has provided. God's idea. God's design. God's provision of life in Jesus Christ. And finding shelter in Jesus And finding protection in Jesus, he bears the wrath of the Father. And the ark is this great, beautiful picture of our salvation in Jesus. So Noah ultimately is driving you straight to Jesus. Noah's not the one to give us rest. Jesus is the one who gives us the rest that God's people were hoping for. So there's Noah.